Let's pray again. Father, make me faithful to your word, to your work, to your Holy Spirit this morning in the way that I speak, in the words that I speak. And don't leave us without your application, causing our hearts to see and to love the truth of your word and to desire your work all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we move out of the books of Moses, which we've been in for numbers of weeks, I want to spend this last week looking into the fishbowl of the history of Israel in the wilderness wanderings. And throughout it all, posing this question in the back of your minds. Since you have been delivered out of slavery to sin, since that first day of the dawning light that Christ was real and He died for you personally, And you may have felt like I did such unbelievable weight lifted off your life. That the meaning of your existence and the hope of true joy in life after death came upon you. Did it always remain that light? Or since that time two years ago or 28 years ago, have you found yourselves being led out of Egypt of sin? into long wilderness, not resting in the land of promise, wanderings. That's my hope this morning, that as we look at Israel in the wilderness wanderings, you will see that that is a picture of your life and of your God leading you personally for His good purposes. I don't want to assume anything at this point. I do want to just say this, therefore. The five books of Moses are the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The vast majority, almost the entirety of the next four books, other than the first couple chapters of Exodus, cover a period of 40 years. And that's it. We have seen God deliver Israel from Egypt through the Red Sea. And now here's the big question. There certainly had to have been a shorter route to the promised land than Mount Sinai where He gave the law. Picture in the back of your Bible, the maps, you have the Sinai Peninsula here. They came out of Egypt. The promised land is here. God takes them way down here. 200 miles out of the way. Which, if you're driving a car like we were this last Christmas going back to Texas, we had to take a 200 mile detour because of a snowstorm. It's significant. But if you're walking and you have no food and no water and no shade, it can test your patience. But that is what God did. I mean, it's not as if God does not have His own eternal, perfect map quest of the terrain from Egypt to the Promised Land. The same God 
who delivered Israel through the opening of the Red Sea could clearly take them the quickest, shortest, most direct, and most painless way to Canaan. But He didn't. We, as finite human beings, who are being led that way, find our hearts saying, God, if You really cared about Your people, You would have led them to the Jordan immediately and give in them the law there and not way down there in Sinai. In other words, somewhere on a more direct route to their ultimate destination. Here's the thesis of this morning. God always has purpose for His, here's a big theological term, for His strange ways. And the Bible is filled with God's strangeness. He does things in ways we as human beings would never think to do. And you have to think, and when we read, and as you have read through the books of Moses, don't you just get stunned? How could they react that way? But how often do we react about the way our lives unfold? Questioning God's, what are those called? Triptychs? You get from AAA, I want to go here to there. <laughs> and they don't take you here to there. God doesn't. He takes you from here to way over there, to under there, to those ten years to, to hear and, and to finally get to that part of your life. And we moan and we groan and we grumble so much easier than just accepting God's plan and learning the lessons. I mean, I'll give you your test. Just close your eyes. Think about the last two years of your life. Did you see that coming? That the way you had it planned out? Or the last 28 years of your life? Is this where you dreamed you would be in your life and the way you would have gotten there when you were in your 20s? And now you're in your 40s. No, but you're a believer. And God meant it that way. You can... Reopen your eyes. God always is leading His people, believers, through the wilderness. Oh, they get to get into a house and have rest periods, but He purposes to lead His people into wilderness experiences. No home, no place to lay my head. How am I going to survive until they have nothing to rely on? Because you're so confused. Except for God. He led His own Son into the wilderness so that He would be tested and tried. One thing that does tell us is that Therefore, do not assume God does that because He's against you. He wasn't against Jesus. God does it because He must somehow know there is 
good to be gotten out of that experience. For these Israelites, God must have known in taking them to Sinai to begin with that He is in no hurry and they ought not be in any hurry to glut themselves on milk and honey in the promised land. And that's exactly what He teaches us through the wilderness wanderings of His people in Israel. If you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, what God is doing in such experiences is weaning His people from reliance on the world and worldliness and idolatry. So that when He graciously brings you into the next step of your life, He graciously brings you into the marriage, the parenting, that particular ministry, the mission field, your career. You will not forget the reality that you learned in that experience and the other experience. That everything I have now is dependent on God and He's my treasure above it all. After the 40 years of just circling and wandering in the desert, they could have gotten there in a couple months. It took 40 years. Right before they crossed, Moses said in Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 to 18, to the people, hear it. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that He might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and my might, the might of my hand, have gotten me all this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. That's God's philosophy for your life. 
That's God's philosophy for His providence in your life. The good and the very painful. When everything feels to fall in place, you're in Canaan in a good house. And when you have absolutely no idea who you are or where you're going. That's His philosophy. It says it right there. He led you into and through and carried you all those 40 years in the wilderness. Verse 16. That He might humble you and test you. Why? Here's the why. To do you good in the end. I'm going to read it again. It's too precious. He did this wilderness wandering for Israel in order to lovingly smash their pride and idea of self-sufficiency. To test them for the purpose of God, Yahweh, our Father, graciously, quote, to do you good in the end. What's the good? Is the good the massive grapes and fruit trees of Canaan? Is the good you're going to get your plot of land, all you twelve tribes, and you're going to break it up amongst yourselves, and you're going to have land to farm? Is that the good? Can't be. It didn't take 40 years of pain and suffering and wilderness wandering to teach them how to get rich. The good that God was doing for them was humbling their pride. Was teaching them He, God, is their all. And they are utterly helpless and utterly dependent. Utterly helpless without them. That they would be so conscious of their total dependence. The text says, God was doing this wilderness wandering experience for them. Read it down towards the bottom. So that it would be impossible once they make it to Canaan for them to honestly and spiritually reasonably say, quote, my power and my might got me all this well. Because the real testing ground for them and the real testing ground for us Christians today is on the Canaan side of Jordan. The wilderness is the boot camp to prepare one, to deal with it, and to handle it. It's the land of plenty, milk, and honey is where the battle for the heart of
of the Christian is really and finally fought. There's much more danger in America than in a third world country. There's much more danger in owning your own house or homes, having a nice 401k, having plenty of vacation time and money to do it than there ever was on the other side of the river during those dark nights of the soul of the wilderness wandering. God's wilderness experience for His people then and now is merciful, gracious inoculation against the prosperity that may come. If you are in Christ, and people have been in Christ very short times and much longer times, but every person who is in Christ and they do not know that experience, they will. They can count on it. Five verses before our main text in Deuteronomy 8 that I quoted from Moses, he says in verse verse 5, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Then he goes off and explains, that's why I, God, had you wander for 40 years. To do you good in the end. And the Hebrew writer adds to that in the New Testament, quote, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the wilderness is never easy. Ever. But it will produce real good if we will be trained by it. Those who were trained by it in Israel as opposed to those who weren't. And us today will find a deeper happiness. We will find a more solid walk in relationship with Christ. We are the most free and ultimately will be the most thankful to that God who has led us through and to the other side of another wilderness experience. So, let me let us take a journey and skim through the books of Moses in this 40 year period of this wilderness wandering quickly as I can. They come out of Egypt. God leads them to the wilderness of Sinai. It took about three months to get there. They remained in the wilderness of Sinai for just about two-year period. That's where they got the law from God and they were constructing the tabernacle that God commanded them to build. That whole two-year period is covered from Exodus chapter 19 all the way through the rest of Exodus. All the book of Leviticus and the first ten chapters of Numbers, that two years is right there. 
Then, you get to Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. The people set out from the wilderness of Sinai towards the land of Canaan, the promised land. They come up into Kadesh Barnea, just south of Canaan. They're real close now. God has them get ten leaders of the ten, twelve leaders of the ten, twelve tribes to be spies. Those twelve spies go into the land of Canaan for about six weeks. Spy it out. They finally come back. And in Numbers chapter 13, we see they come and give the report to the whole congregation of Israel. Two of those spies, Caleb and Joshua, say to the people, quote, Let us go up at once and occupy the land God promised and told us to go get. Because we are well able to overcome it. Then, the other ten spies disagreed. They amazingly disagreed. No, we can't do it. And it's amazing because all those ten guys were in Egypt. They went through the Red Sea. They have been being fed miraculously manna for the last two and a half years. God said, go take it. They spy it out. They come back and say, quote, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. End quote. Can you imagine the look on Caleb and Joshua's face? There's something very different about those two from those ten. They get up again and they say to the people in Numbers 14, 7 and 9, quote, The land, listen to their reasoning, the land which we pass through to spy out is an excellent or an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into the land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. They knew that was the issue. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. That's what they said in response to the other ten, to the people. Believers like Caleb and Joshua always are baffled at the unbelief of nominal Christians. That's what's going on. Two had faith. They trusted God's commandment and His promise. His promise, I give you the land. Therefore the command, go, take it. I will be with you. Nominal religious people, no, we saw it. They're bigger than we are. 
more than we are, we can't take it. Caleb and Joshua just reason very simply. If God said, I give you the land, go take it, then it is irrelevant how big and how many they are. In fact, God may want it that way so that He gets all the glory. But then we turn to Numbers chapter 14 and the congregation, the people of Israel as a whole, prove that two and a half years in the wilderness is not enough cause their hearts to depend on God alone. They rebel against Moses and God. They want to kill him. And in Numbers chapter 14 verses 11 to 12, listen to the sobering words that God has to Moses. Moses How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them all. And Moses prayed for the people. And the way he argued was not, well, God, don't overreact. The people aren't that bad. He prayed this way. God, Your glory is at stake here. Egypt's going to say, You got them out of Egypt, but You were not strong enough to bring the people into the promised land of Canaan. That's how he argued. And then we see in Numbers 14, verses 18 and 19, Moses quotes God. We, we have seen this in the giving of the law, in the Ten Commandments, what God said, and Moses takes it and quotes it right back to him. This is his prayer. Listen. He's praying, The Lord, Yahweh, is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon, therefore, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And so God answers the prayer and He says in verses 20 to 25, I have pardoned according to your prayer, Moses. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen My glory and My signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put Me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed My voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise Me shall see it but My servant Caleb because he has a different spirit and has followed Me fully, I will bring him into the land into which he went to spy out, and his descendants shall possess it. And now, 
since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. In other words, the whole class of Israel flunked the exam, the test, the training of the heart to believe and trust in God alone. And therefore, the two and a half years proved to not be enough to let them see and come to grips with their human helplessness. Not enough to bring humility to smash their idea of self-sufficiency and they know better than God's direction. And so God says, that's not enough. It's going to be 40 years. And so we see they wandered and wandered. That's a long time. That's 1967. Forty years until all the men who were alive then died off. Except Joshua and Caleb. And so that whole period of 40 years then encompasses the rest of the book of Numbers from chapter 14 to the end. Deuteronomy picks up now, at the end of 40 years, when they're at the other side of the Jordan River, ready to cross it into the land of Canaan. So, what are the lessons we just seen there? What's the lesson of this wilderness wandering? Well, one thing's clear. Israel saw God's miraculous caretaking Day after day after day after day. They saw His wonders from the parting of the Red Sea to the provision of water from a rock to food miraculously day after day after day. And they refused to trust Him. They refused to obey Him. They grumbled again and again and again. And New Testament authors take that, what we're looking at, and say very clearly, do not be like the children of Israel during the wilderness wandering who constantly disobeyed God and failed to trust Him. Do not be like them in that. And the implications are why? Because God is taking you through wilderness wanderings. Just like God's purpose was then, it's His purpose now. It's His twofold purpose to give you the grace of weaning you from idolatry. The grace of trusting in anything this world or people offer you for contentment and happiness. He is smashing that spurning of Himself, arrogance of Himself in the wilderness wandering. Not only that, and in the wilderness, He is constantly providing provision for the people. Why? Those two going together to learn the lesson that they may trust in the Lord with all their heart and lean not on their own understanding, but in all of His ways to acknowledge Him, knowing and trusting He will direct your path through the wilderness and in Canaan. 
God's purpose, first and foremost, is the negative one. To reveal and to expose to yourself your wicked, human, helplessness without Him. So that you will turn to Him. That's how Jesus said it. Unless you turn, change, and become like little dependent children, you shall all likewise perish. He does the negative for the setup of the constant positive to prove His faithfulness in taking care of His own. And that's what He did for Israel for 40 years. Let me go back to the text and illustrate it. They come out of Egypt and immediately they realize we are doomed. (laughs) There's a lot of them. What are we going to eat? And so, they say in Exodus 16.3, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and the bread to the full, had bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's lesson number one. At least they're experiencing the reality. Yeah, you are doomed. And God wants you, Israel, to feel it. But then comes the second lesson. God says to them, and this is the gracious, glorious one, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. The lesson's clear there. That's your God. He can do what is humanly, scientifically impossible to take care of His people. He will do it for all His people. His people should and therefore ought constantly, even when you feel like your existence is going out, your significance is going out, you do not know what tomorrow may bring in family, in marriage, in ministry, in church. You don't know. You can therefore trust and there's a way in the midst of the wilderness to therefore rejoice that you know He's sovereign. He is a caretaker. He has a good purpose even in my being lost out in the desert of Paran or Sinai. But Israel did not learn that lesson. He's feeding them miraculously. (laughs) Couple months pass and the manna becomes old hat. 
just like for Christian people, err. You assume you deserve it. Family. An intact marriage. A job. A roof. Old hat. They forgot the source of their daily sustenance. Of this manna they made cake breads out of every day. And so on the way between Sinai and Canaan, they grumbled. Amazingly, Numbers chapter 11, verse 18, they said, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. They had lost all sense of gratitude. And they murmured again saying, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt. The cost nothing to us. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. That attitude angered God greatly. And He tells Moses to say to the people, quote, The Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before Him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? It is a terrible thing for a human being to say, My life would have been better if you would not have delivered me and caused me to follow you. Oh, we should never. I mean, the, the, the old saying in our culture, smell the roses. As a Christian, we should never stop smelling the roses. We should hate it when we realize I am assuming my next breath in the air that He gave me, literally. When we assume the precious children we have, when we assume the roof that is over our head, though we might not have everything else others around us have. And the worst of all, how we assume salvation. How easy it is to forget what it means to be saved in our daily grind of wilderness walking. How Christians could go month after month after month in depression with no joy. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I mean, you understand that you were doomed not for 40 years, but for an eternity of God's wrath. And that one day, He, for nothing that you deserved or did, 
plucked you out of Egypt. Sin and delivered you into the kingdom of His Son. How easily we assume and forget and say, I'm sick of the manna. I would that you had never caused me to follow you out into this wilderness. Only very short-sighted and stubborn people reject God's training school of the wilderness. Because it's never easy. But almost nothing in all this life is easy if it's worth getting. But it's absolutely essential. It's essential for them if they're going to enter the promised land. And so today, we need to remember constantly in our life. Some of you have been Christians long enough. You, may, you have had great wilderness wanderings. You've had numbers of them. You've had smaller ones. And when you're on this side of Canaan, only then do we easily appreciate it, don't we? Because of the lessons taught of the depth in your heart work. But therefore, we need to constantly remember whether you're in one now or not in one. God's purpose, according to Deuteronomy 8.16, is for your good in the end. That wilderness wandering is meant to strip you. It's meant to strip me. It's meant to crush our arrogant, self-sufficient ego. And that is a mercy that gives us the grace now to rest and trust in His promises written to us in Holy Scripture. When we come to the place where we realize again there is nowhere to turn in the wilderness except to God. Just to breathe the next day in your pain. That's a grace. The test is whether ultimately we become a thankful person for what God is doing. The good that comes to us, that He's promising in the test, in the humbling, is a solid assurance that whatever you're experiencing now, whatever you'll experience on the horizon, whatever pain, whatever wandering lostness overwhelms your conscious mind of hopelessness, is that there's an assurance It's the same God leading you who will be able to slay the giants in the land. Whether that's the giant of your marriage, of your career, of raising children, of where you're supposed to be five years from now, of just overbearing depression that has no reason to it, He will cause you to overcome it. We can be Caleb and we can be Joshua in the midst of the wilderness wanderings. Because God is our goal. Not Canaan. 
God is our goal. When the wilderness wandering is saying, those things you desire, those things you thought God promised you, maybe He did. Maybe He didn't. You thought you're supposed to be here at this stage of life. The wilderness wandering says, God is your goal. And He smashes out making any of those other things our God. And so whether you're in the midst of one this morning, you're going to come into another dark night of the soul, a wilderness wandering, or whether you're not, I want to close with manna from heaven. Psalm 37, verses 3 to 7. Hear God speak to you today and in the future when you desperately need such words. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desire of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Oh Father, I pray that because of the cross of Christ, everyone in here will be a Caleb and a Joshua who entered the promised land through wilderness wanderings. That everyone here will not be like hard-hearted, unregenerate, spiritless people. May You teach us in the experience of the desire to grumble, to turn again, and to become like little children who can trust their mommy and their daddy even when the car breaks down, even when the car of our life breaks down. Oh, Father, bring us through sanctification unto eternal salvation to the glory of Your Son, Jesus.